Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets a middle grade novel due out in May. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider what makes a thriller thrilling. Ooh. <laughs> We've long wanted to do an episode about thrillers, and I've been reading a lot of them lately, both because they're very diverting during the pandemic and because I'm trying to write one, which is kind of bonkers for someone no, like me. No, well, you're exploring new fields. <laughs> yes. Well, my books do not tend to be plot driven. So the thriller is an interesting avenue for me to pursue, but it's something I really want to try. I mean, a great thriller is so much fun. Yes. I found a terrific class on writing genre fiction taught by a woman named Emily Stone. I really recommend that class. Anyway, one day I was complaining that a lot of thrillers are so plot-focused that nothing really stays with me when I'm finished. I just kind of race through the plot and I don't feel anything the next day. I don't continue to think about the world or the characters. She recommended a new thriller, The Push, by Ashley Audrain, and that book really stayed with me. Oh, me too. Me too. And I think that's because it's character-driven. The tension in the book isn't so much about what happens next, although there's plenty of that kind of tension too. It's more about who can we trust and what do they want? And to understand those things, we need to understand who they are. So here's how the book jacket describes the story. A tense, page-turning psychological drama about a woman, Blythe, who's determined to be the kind of warm, comforting mother that she herself never had. But fairly on, she begins to worry that her daughter might be monstrous. Her husband, Fox, says she's imagining things. The more Fox dismisses her fears, the more Blythe begins to question her own sanity. Mm. Don't you want to read that book? (laughs) I do. I did read the book. And, And we reached out to Ashley to see whether she would come talk to us about it. And of course, we're thrilled that she did. So Ashley Audrain previously worked as the publicity director of Penguin Books Canada. Before working at Penguin, she worked in public relations. She's a graduate of the Media Information and Technoculture Program at Western University. The Push is her first novel, and it was an instant New York Times bestseller. We started by asking Ashley whether she always wanted to be a novelist, and here's what she said. I would say... In my heart, yes. <laughs> I had always wanted to be a novelist. If you, you know, had have asked me, I think, what I wanted to be when I was young, you know, like a little girl, I would have said a novelist for sure. But um, I don't know if you, you know, you guys have experienced this as well, but you sort of go through life and you get sort of swayed from the path that I think you really want to be on sometimes. And I feel like that sort of happened to me where I think as I got older, your mind really just gets pulled to the direction of how can I make a living? (laughs) 
how can I afford to pay my rent, you know, when I'm out of college, how, you know, your mind sort of goes to that more career kind of oriented, that more traditional route. And for me, that was definitely true. I mean, I didn't grow up around any other artists or any writers. And, you know, my parents had very hardworking, traditional jobs. And I really remember thinking, okay, I, I need to pursue something else. And so I did, I pursued communications and public relations. And the writing always sort of stayed with me, but it was this thing I did on the weekends and at night and wrote fiction, but never pursued actually writing a novel. I totally get what you're talking about because I started out as an opera singer. So yes, Mm. we take different paths. And then the other thing that occurred to me as you were talking is I worked in book publishing in my twenties and I, like you had written stories when I was a kid. And then when I started working in book publishing and I sort of saw up close how novelists worked and what they were doing. In my case, I thought, oh my God, how do they do that? I could never do that. And so how do you create 300 pages out of nothing? You know, that just seemed impossible. I think that's right. The realization I had too, and I don't know if you found this, but like everybody had an MFA, you know, and everybody had gone to these impressive writing schools and they had pursued writing their whole lives. And I remember being so intimidated by that, you know, thinking like, I haven't spent my whole life dedicated to publishing this book. And so would I even deserve that? Yeah, I I totally agree with that kind of exposure to the more you know, the more, you know, intimidating it sort of feels. Yes, absolutely. But conversely, how did working in publishing prepare you for what it's like to be an author? Yeah, I don't think the publicity side of it really prepared me for writing the book. I think that that has prepared me now for when the book is out in the world and everything that <laughs> comes along with that, which is that, you know, feels like you have to be almost like a totally different person than you were when you were, you know, writing for years. But um, what I think that publishing really prepared me for was, I think it was the reading. I really think that, you know, when you work in publishing, like you would know you read so much. Mm -hmm. You have to read all of the books of the authors that I was doing publicity for. And, you know, you're reading the competition and you're, I mean, you're just, and you're reading, I think also far more widely than you would otherwise, or at least I did. Like I read far more commercial than I normally did and also far more literary. But looking back now, I can see that all of that reading was an incredible, invaluable education as a writer. Was it hard at all to, you know, after being on the other side and having a lot of control over publicity to be on the author's side of it and just be available and prepared? Mm. You know, I, I have to say, like, to be really honest, I think I would have found it hard if I felt like, you know, the publicity teams weren't doing everything they could. Because I think that can be hard. And I remember, like, when we would work on books, like, not every book gets the same budget behind it. There were some books that you had to pay more attention to than others. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard, I think, as a publicist, because you know that you want to do everything you can for every book you know that you are assigned to. Sure. And you have editors behind each of those books who also want that same thing of you. But at the end of the day, you can't do everything you know, for every book. And so you have to have these hard conversations internally at a publishing house to say, like, what is getting the budget? What is getting the tour? You know, what's getting the advertising? Like all of that. And so I know it's very hard for authors when you feel like there's more that your publisher can be doing for you. Yeah. You know, one thing I think people are often surprised to learn is that authors don't have, um, well, unless they're very, very famous authors, authors Mm. usually don't have control over their titles and their covers. Mm. Um, What about you? Was the push always your working title? And what was the cover design process like? 
often in publishing, writers have sort of a leaning to think a little more artistically about their work, I think, and resist kind of that more commercial consideration of it. I remember working with authors when they would resist the more kind of commercial titles or the more commercial covers. But ultimately, you know, you need the book to sell. (laughs) And and the input of those salespeople and of the marketing people at the publishers is what you have to go with. And they always, you know, more more often than not, they know exactly what they are talking about. They know exactly what's going to work for their customers and for the different retailers. I've always been very aware of that. And so I sort of say, like, I'm happy to go with the professional's opinions on everything. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So lots of folks, including Viking Books and a number of media outlets, have connected your book with Lionel Shriver's We Need to Talk About Kevin. They say, basically, if you love that book, you'll love the push too, which makes me feel like we need to talk about we need to talk about Kevin. (laughs) Um, So that book, like The Push, tells the story of a mother who fears that her child might be a monster. Did you have that book in mind when you were working on The Push? So interesting. Yeah. I mean, that comparison has come up and I find it insanely generous (laughs) to even talk about these two books in the same sentence. So I really you know, resist comparing this to that. I think that's such a masterpiece. And obviously Lionel Shriver is um, such a brilliant writer. But the thing that does connect them is just that idea. Could your child be capable of something like that? And the idea of like, you know, where does sort of that evil in a person kind of come from? I read that book when it first came out. And I remember the experience of reading it. I remember reading it on an airplane, like all in one sitting. You know, some books really stay with you. Like you remember like there's a visceral feeling of like, where was I when I read this? I remember where I was when I read that book too, which is oh, really, really weird. Yeah. Oh, wow. Where <laughs> yeah. were you? I was traveling. I was in a hotel room and I couldn't stop reading the book. You know, my family wanted to go places and I was like, no, no, no. When I'm done. That's funny. Yeah. Oh, it's just, yeah, gripping for sure. And so it must have stayed with me in a very like subconscious way because I didn't think about it when I started writing this book. And it wasn't until I had gotten pretty far along in the draft that I read something about that book and I thought, oh my God, there are so many similarities. It's not just that one question. I mean, because she also uses a voice that is basically a letter. Her book is really a letter um, to her husband and that is similar to this. And I remember I had that feeling that I think so many writers do where you sort of think, oh my God, is it too close? Like, is it too much the same? Or is this original enough? And so I remember having that moment of panic and then thinking, I just need to not think about that and just keep writing what I'm writing and I'll you know, deal with that later. Yeah. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then the comparison, of course, came up again, I think, with publishers when they were acquiring the book. I really didn't want that book in my head once I realized the comparison of it. So I didn't go back to kind of read anything else about it and jog my memory. But I really want to go back and read it now. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to confirm that I have had the exact same feeling. I have too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, have you? Have you? Well, to be fair, I forget. there's that very famous line about, you know, just the idea that every story has been told before. So you've had plenty of company in feeling that way. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Yes, it's true. Have you heard from a lot of mothers? Well, I was going to say, have you heard from a lot of mothers since writing this book? But I have to imagine you've heard from a lot of mothers since writing this book. So assuming you have, what kinds of responses have stood out for you? Oh my goodness. Yes. And it's been you know, the most meaningful part of this whole process. I mean, truly to be getting these messages from mothers and from women who aren't mothers as well. Some of them have shared really moving personal stories of what motherhood has been like for them. And I've heard from women who have written me to say that they've decided not to have children 
and that this book also validates that choice for them in a hmm. way, which I was yeah. not expecting. I, those messages, I think, have surprised me maybe the most. You know, I think it kind of comes back to this idea that, you know, it's certainly true of some of the women in this book or some of the mothers in this book. You know, they know it's not the choice for them. Mm-hmm. They know that they don't want to be a mother and they know that they don't want to raise children. And sometimes they find themselves in a position where they feel like they just have to for various reasons. And again, like there's women in the book who find themselves in this situation and just can't see a way out of it. And so go ahead with it, you know, knowing that it's not for them. And several of those women actually who have written to say that have said that a lot of it is because of the experience that they've had with their mother Mm -hmm. and that they have had such a fraught relationship with their mother that it, it has turned them off of wanting to be a mother too, or wanting to kind of have that experience with another person on the other side. And so, yeah, it's all been very, very interesting and really just really meaningful. I'm so interested in this question of how much what happens in earlier generations is going to affect later generations. Ashley really puts this out there in the push, not just the fear that you'll be a bad parent because you've had a bad parent, but also how much are descendants affected by generations that are long gone. There have been some studies suggesting that the trauma of past generations the trauma in the Holocaust, for example, or in famine, can affect later generations. I have a fear personally of small or crowded spaces. I get a little panicky, like, how am I going to get out? How Mm. am I going to get out? Mm -hmm. And it feels right to me, although I have no proof, that that's connected to my ancestors' terror in Nazi Germany or maybe even further back in pogroms in Russia and Romania. So many traumatizing events. To yeah, choose so from. many. The Ashkenazi Jews, <laughs> yeah. the, the Inquisition. <laughs> the, <laughs> right, right. You can take your pick. Right. It is fascinating to think about, but I also find it a little scary from a motherhood perspective. Mm. I mean, this idea that I can pass on the after effects of my trauma or my parents' or grandparents' trauma. So even if I do all the right things or I mean, let's face it, enough right things. (laughs) We know I'm not going to do all the right things. But even if I do enough right things to raise emotionally healthy children, and then on top of that, they're lucky in that nothing external traumatizes them while they're growing up, they can still feel traumatized and there's nothing I can do to prevent that. And it all came from me. Well, no, (laughs) no, but I will say this theme of we can't control everything does keep cropping up in our podcast. I think the universe is trying to tell us something. Exactly. (laughs) Ashley goes back many generations in her novel, and she includes this fascinating quote about intergenerational effects at the very beginning of the book. The quote is from When the Drummers Were Women by Lane Redmond. It is often said that the first sound we hear in the womb is our mother's heartbeat. Actually, the first sound to vibrate our newly developed hearing apparatus is the pulse of our mother's blood through her veins and arteries. We vibrate to that primordial rhythm even before we have ears to hear. Before we were conceived, we existed in part as an egg in our mother's ovary. All the eggs a woman will ever carry form in her ovaries while she is a four-month-old fetus in the womb of her mother. This means our cellular life as an egg begins in the womb of our grandmother. We vibrate to the rhythms of our mother's blood before she is even born. 
I got chills when I first read that. It totally rocked my world, that connection to mother and grandmother. It really blew me away. And it also made me miss my grandmother so much. Yeah. (laughs) I love my grandmother. (laughs) I remember reading the quote and calling you. Like, did you see the quote or vice versa? I can't remember who did it. But we had both read it and we were both, (laughs) oh my gosh, we have to talk about this. (laughs) Yeah. We asked Ashley where she found it and when. Here's what she said. I found it as part of um, researching for the book. I I was looking a lot into like attachment theories that we have with our mothers and also with other parental figures. And that had brought me to a midwife site. And this site that I was on quoted this as well from the book. And I thought, oh my God, I, I remember having this moment when I read it where it was just like everything that I was writing about in a way. It was again, one of those weird kind of magical creative moments where something just pops for you. It's just a powerful idea. And of course it makes sense, you know, biologically we know this, but to think of it in this way is, yeah, just very powerful. Yeah. It really does ground the story. Um, it feels like there's backstory to some of, at least some of your characters' names, Fox, Blythe, mm-hmm. <laughs> Violet, Gemma, Jet. Can you tell us what you were thinking about when you chose some of these names? I know it's funny. I don't know. There's not really a backstory. There's, it really, really, yeah. Your husband's I know. name is People Fox? Have, I know. <laughs> I know it's funny. Anything. <laughs> no, I really wasn't. And somebody had, a few people have pointed out that Violet is only the letter N away from, right, you know, right. another way I know, but I honestly, I really, it was not a choice. And actually another uh, journalist I was talking to from Brazil, I think had said to me, was it purposeful that so many of the male characters in the book only have names with three letters? And that I also didn't know. I didn't notice. So there's been lots of pointing out about the names and none of it has had any thought behind it. You've been very clear that your own mother is nothing like Blythe's mother or grandmother. Um, that yeah. <laughs> Blythe's experiences are not like your own. How are you able to get so deeply into the mindsets and the family dynamics of these characters who are so different from you and your experiences? Mm. You know, I think a lot of it is really just trying to have empathy, you know, for what each of these characters lives are like and what they are going through and just really trying to put myself kind of in their shoes and thinking about what that would be like. I mean, it sounds like a simple answer, That's, but it just sort of, that's just sort of what it is. And, you know, I think with a lot of Blythe, you know, in particular, she experiences some very difficult things that, you know, as mothers, we certainly hope and pray that we will never experience ourselves. And, you know, I was writing this when my kids were so young. I mean, they were sort of the age of Violet through much of the book, you know, when I was writing the first draft. And I think that for me, there, there felt something very compelling about facing such a challenging, dark, scary thing as a mother, as a writer, you know, it it was, it was, those were all of my fears. And I was sort of working through them Mm -hmm. on the page, what that would be like, how that would feel, what I would do. And so I think that was some of it. It's harder for me now to go back and read those. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, you know, when you're writing, you or at least I feel this way, like you're so in control of what's on the page. You know, you're in control of how the characters feel. You're in control of whatever that next sentence is. You know, you you get to decide how dark or deep or scary it goes. And so you feel a little less vulnerable, I think, when you're writing it than you do when you're reading it. You know, it's that that idea of kind of compartmentalizing yourself as the writer and the mom <laughs> whose life, you know, looks a little like the writer, but is different. Well, compartmentalizing and as you say, using empathy as a way to get into their minds, which brings me to this, to the next topic I'd love to talk about, which is the nature of evil. 
Mm. Do you think there are people in the world who are just born that way and they have perfectly nice parents, a perfectly decent upbringing, or is there always some kind of genetic or environmental influence? Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think that's part of what I was exploring. I think the question I was exploring in the book, which I don't have all the answers to, and I don't know if any of us do, you know, and I think that that's what makes it such a fascinating thing. I mean, it's so, and I, I always felt like this, you know, before I got pregnant and had my son and also I felt the same way again with my daughter, but it's like, there's so much unknown about who that person is going to be that you're bringing into the world, you know? And I feel like we like to think we have so much control over our children, over who they're going to be and what they're going to do and how they're going to treat people and everything about them. And we, we really don't. No, we really, no, really, don't. Don't. really don't. <laughs> and you sort of have moments of trying to convince yourself, you know, of how much influence you have. And I think there are parents, I know there are parents of children who would tell you that they can barely recognize their child, mm-hmm. that their child is not somebody they ever thought they would raise and has made decisions they cannot fathom. Yeah. That happens, you know, to people. And yet we all sort of go into it believing that that's not going to be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a nice segue actually to our next question, which is how much responsibility do you think Fox has for Violet's character and her actions? Mm -hmm. Quite a bit. We so often look to the mother as a person to blame. Mm -hmm. We so easily point our finger, you know, in her direction when we are looking to explain who a little boy or a little girl is. But I think I think the reality is that Fox lets Violet behave the way Violet behaves because he turns a blind eye to it. She manipulates him. You know, she is quite manipulative and she knows that she has power over him because she has, even at her young age, I think she comes to sense that Fox wants her to be a certain kind of little girl. And so if she can pretend to be that for him, then she will be fine. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he really enables so much of what happens in this family because what's really happening is just so inconvenient for him. It is so against the narrative that he feels he is owed, you know, as a father and as a husband and as a man. And so he shuts Spike down and lets Violet be who he wants Violet to be. You know, we see how damaging that is for sure. I'm so glad that Ashley adds this complexity of the contribution of the father to this calamity involving the child. You know, society leaps to blame the mother, and we as mothers, I think, tend to blame ourselves when something goes wrong. I cannot tell you the number of times I've thought, if only I had eaten more vegetables during my pregnancy, we would not be having this problem. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, please. I wrote a hate letter to Martin Scorsese after he made The Aviator because the entire backstory for Howard Hughes' mental illness was that he had an overbearing mother. I was so enraged. (laughs) Rage is so much healthier than my approach. (laughs) Well, he didn't write back, but it did get the feelings off my chest. I was able to express myself. You know, I think the greatest strength of the push is its complexity when it comes to the characters, this complexity you're talking about. Because as bad as some of the people are, nobody in this book is a monster. Nobody's that simple. I actually have a real problem with the word monster when we talk about people in general, because I think it just lets us all off the hook, right? I mean, as long as you're not a monster, you're a good person. When in reality, don't we all have monstrous qualities and impulses? I just think when we label someone a monster, we don't have to look closer at why they did what they did, what contributed to it, what were the mitigating factors, and then most importantly, who else bears some responsibility? Yeah, that's all true. 
Although I will say some of the characters in the push come pretty close to being monsters. Totally. Well, it's a question of degree, right? And it's also a question right. of do you control those impulses? Yeah, it's true. Anyway, your point that the book is very good at having multi-dimensional complex characters is totally right. I spoke with a friend who read the book, loved it, and said that the ending seems to beg for a sequel. And so you and I asked Ashley whether she wrote the ending with that in mind and whether a sequel was in the works. And she said no to both. But I have decided that she needs to write a book where Violet has grown up and is now a mother. And it needs to be told from the perspective of Violet's child. Mm. Yeah. This idea is gold. I'm just saying. You heard it here first. Genius. Yes. (laughs) Right right, right here on the Book Dreams podcast. (laughs) And I think that is it. We're going to end on that high for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Ashley at ashleyodrain.com and on Twitter as at Audrain. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and-